0: Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're covering community feedback. We've got Eric and Brandon from the Pseudo Show joining us to have an interview about about the Pseudo Show and about their lives in Linux. Linus kicks off the open-source summit in a virtual manner. We're going to talk about, the in the main topic, we're going to have the battle between ZFS and ButterFS, which, of course, Noah will be taking the ButterFS side because that's his favorite. We're also going to talk it about our, our famous software picks with the tips and tricks and the software spotlight. All of this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux.
1: Here's your life. We're gonna start the episode everybody's good Here comes episode 181. Michael Welcome
0: to episode 181 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux shows is a show for all experience levels, so whether you're a beginner to Linux or a master suitor, welcome to the show. My name is Michael, and with me today are the Cyberpunk 2077 Bar Scene Extras, Noah and Ryan. Okay, we're back to the the super weird ones. All right, great. So (laughs) let's find out about what's everyone's been been up to this week. So Noah, what have you been up to this week?
1: Well, I've not been to 2077, nor have I been to a bar, nor have I started a scene, nor do I have anything extra. Um, So (laughs) we'll start there. We'll start there. No, I've. Uh, we're setting up a really cool solution or trying a really cool solution. It's called ThinLinks, and it is a thin client operating system that's designed for the Raspberry Pi. In fact, it comes pre-installed on the Noobs Installer, and you have the opportunity when you flash the Noobs Installer onto an SD card to choose ThinLinks, and it's a small miniaturized operating system that can do a couple of different things. You can have it run in sort of a web-based kiosk mode, which loads a specific web page and just locks the user into that. Of course, it has the ability to connect to things like Citrix and RDP and X11 and all of the various different remote desktop protocols, which is what primarily what we are going to use it for. But then it also has a couple of basic features like a basic web browser and a basic media player and, and so on and so forth. So if you have users that are going to primarily run on of thin infrastructure but need to be able to, I don't know, listen to an audio file or play a video, they're going to have the opportunity to, to do that right locally on that machine. And so it's, it's, a, it's not open source to the best that I can tell, um, but it is. $15 and is available, uh, again, flashed on the Noobs installer. So there's really a low barrier to try it out and check it out. Over the next few weeks, we're going to do some testing and see uh, if we think that it's it's a workable solution. And if it is, then we're going to start rolling it out full time for clients. So Ryan, what have you been up to this week?
2: All right. So Noah, there have been many times where you've graciously come to me and asked, hey, what's some hardware advice? What do I buy here? And I've given you that advice and you've loved it so far, but you, sir, have given me some advice lately that has just been on fire when it comes to hardware. And it's specific to this mini computer experiment that I've been in here since the-
1: Go ahead, call it an Grabbing
2: app. the Mac Mini. Yeah. So I, we were talking about the Mac Mini. We were doing some, I was showing you some benchmarks that I was running against the Mac Mini, against all of these other- Mini computers out there and I'm not going to name them all but there's a lot of them that are Linux only based from Linux only companies and the Mac mini was just destroying them and every benchmark and performance and things and you're
1: like, hey, we've got- No, you cannot let the Mac win. I will not stand for it. I won't allow it. I can't be let my friend get sucked into the abyss. That literally (laughs) was kind of what you said and then you're like,
2: (laughs) "What?" in the middle of the night, you send me this link and you're like, what about this? And it's this Intel Nook and it's a gaming mini desktop. And so you're like, hey, I'll send you one. I'll do anything. You've got to make this thing beat it. The, the amazing stuff about this, and we're doing videos on it this week, is this this Nook by Intel, what they've created here, is just an engineering marvel. It's brilliantly designed, of course, because I've taken it apart But that's really not that exciting because they literally give you an Allen wrench with the machine when it ships to you, so you can take it apart. And I've put some of the most high-end components that you can put into this thing, and I've been running it the last week, and it is an absolute beast powerhouse. I was sending you results of Tomb Raider benchmarks on a Nook without an eGPU hitting two, three hundred frames per second in Tomb Raider benchmarks. It's just absolutely amazing what they've packed into this little device and for the cost that you get to it. And it looks awesome too, because when you turn the thing on, you get this awesome looking skull that comes onto the front of the little mini desktop computer. So I've just been having an absolute blast this week with that Nook and they have new versions coming out soon. And so my pocketbook hates you. But the technologist in me just (laughs) loves you for pointing this out because it's just something, honestly, that I ignored. Like nobody really markets these Nooks as desktop replacements other than kind of Mac that I've seen out there. And then there's this and it just makes me very, very happy. It's awesome.
1: This will be interesting, Ryan, to see what, what comes out of this. And What I appreciate about this is you have the expertise to be able to compare one hardware platform to the other, and you also have, you keep your finger close on the pulse of rolling releases. And so as Canonical takes their opportunity to say, hey, maybe we should play with this whole rolling idea, not Canonical specifically, but Martin certainly says, hey, you know, maybe there's something here to this rolling idea, if you're right. And if the problem with Linux on the desktop primarily comes down, or performance anyway, primarily comes down to the fact that we don't have hardware enablement, it takes the uh, an entirely different direction in where we should be going with Linux on the desktop. And th- the good news is, the answer is already there. It's just a matter of implementing what the community has already solved in a corporate like infrastructure. And what I mean by that, to put, you know, the rubber to the road is to get companies like Dell and System76 and Lenovo to start shipping rolling distros rather than static ones.
2: Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, just to to end this, and then it'll be more in videos that I had issues with non-rolling distros that I installed on it first thinking I'll have some stability here when I play with this they didn't work they didn't initialize this particular nook comes with an embedded e- uh, AMD GPU and it would not run certain applications so I was I was IMing with Michael and I said watch this I'll put arch on it manjaro everything will work put manjaro on it everything worked so You know, this is the experience, though, when we tell people go to Linux and they go and what are they going to grab? They're going to grab one of known distros, well-known distros out there, slap it on this, boot it up and go, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm just going to put Windows back on because I know that's going to work. This is kind of a problem when we don't have the hardware enablement. And this isn't a new new Nook. It's not like it came out yesterday. This thing's been out at least well over a year in the marketplace. If not longer, it's the Nook 8. Michael, tell us what you've been up to this week.
0: Well, I've been doing quite a lot of new videos on my Tux Digital channel, so I've made a Mint versus Snaps video, which is very popular in terms of comments being mad at me for not taking the position that a lot of people are taking, Uh, which, by the way, if you're curious, that position is I do not agree with Linux Mint, and I think they handled it very poorly. If you'd like to learn more about that, check out the video on the channel.
2: If you want to leave hate comments, go to Michael's (laughs) channel, and you can leave them too.
0: Yeah, exactly. There you go. And also we did some other things that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, previous episode of Destination Linux, we covered some topics that were kind of impromptu. And this was like the a topic we talked about where Linux gaming is important and why you should care and why everyone should care. And we also talked about Uh, The 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 topic about Windows, people not blaming Windows for its faults, and this was I thought both of those were interesting topics. So we, myself and Ryan, created these individual clip videos to put on our channels, and they've been working out pretty well because a lot of people, some people, didn't see those segments, and it was very helpful. So I'm happy to let you know that we were going that we were just doing that as a test. But in the future, if we if there's another kind of impromptu topic that makes sense to do those kinds of videos, we're going to do those because. Uh, They worked out quite well. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to check out this great service. You may or may not know, but websites and apps are under attack every day, and because of this, security breaches can occur. When When you reuse the same passwords across many websites, hackers will... Well, they'll they'll just thank you for that because they can easily access your email, bank, and other important accounts if you reuse those passwords. This is why security experts recommend that you use a different, randomly generated password for every online account. With Bitwarden, you can create these randomly generated passwords that are different for every site you visit, and the best part is Bitwarden will manage all of it for you, so you don't have to. And Bitwarden works across your devices from mobile, desktop, browser plugins, and even on the command line. We're all big fans of Bitwarden, and one of the reasons is just a great service, but trust is a very important factor for password managers, so how does Bitwarden prove that they can be trusted? Well, Bitwarden is 100% open source. That's right, 100% open source. So everyone is free to review, audit, and contribute to Bitwarden's code base. And if you want to self-host it, you can even do that. I've been using password managers for years, and in fact, I've been using Bitwarden for years, but before I found Bitwarden, I always said, I would love for a company to make a competitor competitor to all of these proprietary solutions that had feature parity and was open source. Then like gold at the end of a rainbow, I found Bitwarden. And when I said I wanted feature parity, turns out not only did Bitwarden have those and all those features that I wanted, it also had stuff I didn't even know I wanted, so If you want to make the smart move like many of the awesome people in the community have, then check out bitwarden.com slash DLN. And you can get started for free. But if you're like me, though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially when the premium edition starts at only $10 a year. Yes, that's right. Not per month, per year, $10 per year. So if you want to make that smart move, get a password manager and make that manager Bitwarden. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN, and we want to thank Bitwarden for their support of the Destination Linux podcast and the Destination Linux network.
1: Josh writes in to say, I'm a big fan of both the podcast and Linux. I feel like that should be the other way around. Anyway, having finally made the full switch after windows seven support ended and Linux gaming improved, I'm regretting not doing it sooner. Mm. I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast each week and I've learned a lot from it. I hear a lot of hate towards system D in the Linux community. Why is this? What are your thoughts on it? I would also love to support the podcast, but I'm not a fan of paying monthly. Would it be possible to have a way of making a one-time donation? Thanks and keep up the great work, Josh. Well, Josh, uh, we want to assure you that your, uh, your interest in supporting the show financially had nothing to do with where we placed your feedback, but uh, <laughs> we certainly have, we're certainly very flexible on the ways that we take your money. And I'm sure Michael can elaborate as to how you can make a one-time payment.
0: Yes, we actually are setting up a PayPal approach to doing that. Uh, Unfortunately, there is an issue though. The reason why we don't normally have that as a setup is because it's very, very hard to do any kind of like patron perks and when it would like one off donations through PayPal. So that's why we promote sponsors and Patreon because they allow us to facilitate those kinds of perks but uh, with a pay- paypal they don't really have a mechanism to do that but if you want to do that that method anyway uh I, there will be a, if you go to the de- the destination linux.org website there will be a link uh, for like, if for, through contributions through the uh, paypal if you'd like to do that
1: All seriousness though, man, thanks for writing in. Thanks for sharing this with us. I really hope that this guy serves as an an encouragement to those of you who are sitting there. If you're banging your head against your Windows box, if it's not working out for you, Give Linux a shot. Give it a shot. Take an ISO, install it on a computer, try it as a 30-day challenge. Heck, start with a week challenge, right? Take a spare laptop and see how much of your day-to-day function you can get done on a pure Linux environment. I can almost promise you, you won't go back. And a huge thanks to Josh for writing in this week.
2: Yeah, well, Josh's other question I think is interesting I want to cover. First of all, you... Purposefully, I feel like missed the last part of his, after his signature, saying XFC is the best desktop environment. Yeah, by the way. yeah know, uh, I noticed you just kind of skipped yeah. right over that, but he's not wrong. And then second, he talks about the hate towards system D in the Linux community. Yeah. So what's your take on this, Michael?
0: Well, I think we all agree that we're fans of system D, you know, like, or at least don't really have a preference about like, you know, um, Actually, I think we all are friends because I think the if you if you've used System D or if you've done any sysadmin stuff like I've done minimal sysadmin stuff that's not really my field but even the amount that I have done System D has made it so much easier to do that I I don't really see there's the only hate I, the only reason I can think of that they hate exist is because people don't like change but as far yeah, either, as like what it actually is
1: there are two kinds of people in the world, the people who use it in production environments and the people that are stuck in their curmudgeon ways who so have like, I mean, there is just, there is no technical defense for not using system D there just really isn't.
2: Well, I mean, I have heard the arguments out there about it goes against some philosophy and um, also it's overly complex and bloated it's and
1: overly complex. I've heard it's all like of these things. Oh, okay.
2: So my, my point is that, the problem with the Linux community is that there are individuals out there like this is a new person to Linux. They're really excited. They love that they've left their windows box. And the first thing that they kind of come across is this, why is system D hated? They probably, you know, when you, when I got first gotten to Linux, if you told me system D, I wouldn't even know what you were talking about. Um, so, you know, now they're investigating this stuff and seeing this kind of thing at the end of the day, we, if we want adoption to Linux to really happen, It's one thing to say, I don't agree with some of the philosophy system D does, or I personally prefer this, but when, you know, the person uses the word like hate, and when you talk about system D in chat rooms and things, there literally is just this vile hatred that comes out of some people. And I know it's their passion that they don't know how to properly articulate that into something to say, this is what I don't like about it, but that's okay if that's where everything's going. That's something we need to really think about. You know, I get very passionate about certain subjects as well. And I've had to tailor myself back and say, you know, you don't want it to become something where people think I'm not going to Linux because he's so passionately against that one thing that they do or that they don't do or that I don't like. It really should be something of if you don't like system D and you're in Linux and open source, you have the option of using something else. You really like there's nobody forcing you to use system D. It is the default in most distros, because that's what most professionals and everybody else wants to use. But if you don't want to use it, there are options out there for you to not use it. It exists. Kind of, that's where I would leave it.
1: That's kind of, kind of. But I mean, like at the same time, though, how many how many services, how many scripts, how many other things count on system D being the... I mean, we say that they, they have other choices, but the truth is, like, you look at Puppy Linux I mean they were kind of cut off at the knees when systemd came out because all of a sudden like all of the stuff that is coming around now is no longer compatible.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because we're all moving in a same direction which I'm happy about, but you right. have the alternative to go and and make it work yourself through what is it? init was the in existing there before There's init,
0: there's openrc, there's a quite there's a few and there's also distros that are specifically designed to not use systemd and I think that those are um, you know, fair enough that they want to do that. but I think that moving forward is more important. And also system D, I think is a good is a good structure. and I really like the the simplicity of using it at this point. Uh, so I mean I, I don't I don't have any hatred to system D. And I think that what you said about the community having the hatred is it's like it's it's so upfront about these things in the sense that people most people don't care about system D, or whatever in system or whatever thing that they're using in the back end that it might be a, a, you know, a kind of a negative that we see that is so, so quickly and also not even understand what's related to it. But there's a, most of the time that I've seen people have like massive hatred on a particular project. It's usually good that that project exists. Like they had this massive thing about how pulse audio was, was hated for so long, for a long, for a very long time. And uh, like the previous version was better, like also or whatever, like also was good, but it wasn't better. Like it was still very complicated to use and you have to know like different, if you, if you switch to also now, you'll have to see, like choose between instead of three different devices that pulse like minimizes the amount of things that you have to use also has like 50 and you don't really know I used which to be one, one of is. those
2: people though, Michael, where I did not like pulse. And to this day, I feel like it, There's so many things that could be improved. I really had a problem with it right up until I used Apple because their sound system, I don't even know what it's called, is horrific. There is not even a separate stream to capture desktop audio without installing a third-party application. It's a known defect of their sound system. These are the reasons why I wanted to explore other ecosystems to find these things out. But we generally look at Linux as, oh, it doesn't have this thing, or it's so terrible, or this doesn't work, and we like we talked about last episode, and then you find out when you go to these other ecosystems that they have bigger problems, that they are even less superior than what we have on Linux, and so I find that interesting, but here's the thing. As a new Linux person, I want to tell you this. Use whatever distro you want Don't let people convince you, even though we make jokes and stuff about using Arch or Fedora or this. Use the distro you're comfortable with. Use the systems you're comfortable with. Spend your time learning it and enjoying it and just block out the noise because there's a lot of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That, That is the best advice we could give you is if you found something you like, just use it. So we would like to welcome Eric the IT guy and Brandon Johnson to the Destination Linux show and the Destination Linux network, because we're going to be talking about their new show, the Pseudo Show. So Mm -hmm. Eric is a solutions architect from Red Hat and a, a voice that you've probably heard before from the Ask Noah show. And Brandon is a senior solutions architect for Red Hat, and they have started a new podcast here on the Destination Linux network called the Pseudo Show. So welcome to the show, Eric and Brandon.
3: Hey guys, good to see you. Are
2: you blown away before we get started at the production quality of Destination Linux behind the scenes? And has it given you new ideas for your show?
4: Right.
3: You know, I I was thinking about this during the pre-show, and I, I really feel like Destination Linux would really reach new heights if there were more OBS scenes.
0: That's a good point. I, I totally agree. I will get on that every episode from this going forward. Uh, thank you for that suggestion. So... Definitely. So before we get to the show itself, let's learn a little bit about you, both of you. Uh, Tell us about your day jobs and how you use Linux each day. So let's start with Eric.
3: Um, So as you mentioned, I'm a solutions architect at Red Hat. I work uh, with Brandon in the telco space. I spent about a decade as a systems administrator. Uh, I started out on on this thing called Windows and then Gross. I discovered I I took I took the other pill and realized that there's this other world called Linux and that really started to that really started to increase the velocity of my of my career and I remember coming home one day just exhausted And feeling like, uh, you know, there's got to be more to it than this. And and so I won't forget sitting down at my computer one night and running a search for how to become a better Linux systems administrator. And I came across the open source community. I I found podcasts and forums and Telegram groups. Well, I found Telegram for one thing. (laughs) But uh, I I started making connections in the community, started building friendships and and people that... uh, that I've, I'd only known online or or at conferences, and that led me into a job at GitLab, where I was a solutions architect for about a year, uh, working in sales and doing demos and and uh, and engineering. And little bit little bit ago, probably October of last year, uh, Brandon reached out to me and said, uh, "We we could uh, we could use someone with your with your perspective over at Red Hat." So uh, uh, now I work on Brandon's team and. And so he he's my boss by day and my my co-host by night. So, and it's it's a it's a great circle. As, oh man! So if you mess
2: up, you're gonna get it on the show and at work. Like you have no <laughs> escape. Nice. I like and that. It's
3: if if I mess up at work, uh, he yells at me, and then I just and then I troll him the the entire next episode. <laughs> there you go. You get back to him <laughs> at the work exactly. part.
0: So Brandon, how did you get started with Linux, and uh, tell us about your day with Linux. Let's see, my career started
4: about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, I got to work on a project. And as far as I know, it is still the largest migration of Windows desktops to Linux des- desktops ever done. Uh, 5,000 nice. 5, corporate desktops moving from Windows to Linux. Awesome. Largest corporate. It's probably not the largest public sector because I think uh, Europe, uh, some cities in Europe have that beat. And then, you know, getting to Red Hat about seven years ago, kind of fell into doing work in telco, uh, just because of my virtualization and open stack experience day-to-day Linux. I mean, I work for Red Hat, so think pads all over the place for, uh, for the most part for me. <laughs> nice. Uh, running RHEL or fedora. I also have like a, I don't know, a weird obsession finding the perfect tablet to run a uh, Linux on. Like I have, a. Couple of these guys. I have a few ThinkPad tablets and a few others around. I didn't even know Just that ThinkPad made a tablet, so that's interesting. Obsessing, you know, I kind of obsessed with that, and I have have a bunch of others. Like I have this guy here too. So, what's your HP favorite tablet. been so
2: far? Out of curiosity,
4: actually, it's been uh, this guy. This is an HP the Pro Tablet 608. It's a few years old. It actually works very well runs Gnome shockingly well, given that it only has uh, four gigabytes of RAM.
2: So are you a Gnome user? Obviously, I'm sure you use Fedora or CentOS, or that's your go-to distro?
4: uh, Fedora and RHEL 8. So Gnome uh, is uh, the only uh, desktop environment in RHEL. So I use that in RHEL. And Fedora, default Fedora workstation, I just use Gnome as well.
2: You know what I really appreciate about you, Brandon, is that you actually love Red Hat, and then use Fedora, unlike Noah, who loves Red Hat and uses Ubuntu, which makes no logical sense at all. So I appreciate that so much about you, that you're consistent in your thought process, unlike our host here.
4: I work for Red Hat. Noah doesn't. He just happens to be a fanboy.
2: (laughs) Oh, so you guys know him as the fanboy. All right, good. So I have a question. There are many people in the community who, frankly, they talk about it all the time. They dream of being the employee of an open-source company. So it's their passion when they're at home using Linux on the desktop, administering their own home servers, that type of thing. What advice would you give based on your journeys of how somebody could make that dream come true of working for an open-source community? Sounds like, Eric, you spent your success—it's a tip we've given on the show many times—was building a network, which led you to Brandon. But Brandon, what are your what are some tips for that you would give somebody wanting to get into open source?
4: Well, it's really going to depend on your skill set, but you know, for from a developer standpoint, actually, we talked about this in the upcoming episode. Yeah. And uh, what I recommend uh, developers do is find a project, contribute to it. It especially even if it's a project you have no interest in, like if it's a, a something that maybe would benefit your current employer, go contribute to that project. It might might be might be something interesting. That's of course if your employer will let you uh, contribute to an open source project. But if you want to do it on your own time, go for it. And if it's like a pro- like if it's a project that you think would land you a job at a company like a like Red Hat or or somewhere else, that, that's a great way to to definitely get in. If you're contributing to to projects that a company has a product around, I mean, that, that's a key difference there. There's products and pro- projects, right? You need to make sure that you're contributing to projects that benefit a product. If you're more in the ops side, just use Linux every day. Just gain a reputation uh, in the community. Help people. If you're especially that community focused, but you also need to you need to build a brand around yourself. That that's the same for anyone trying to get into open source. You need to build a brand.
3: Love it. So I would I would say that uh, developers have a little bit more direct path to get from open source to uh, to working at a job in open source. I cannot stress enough how important it is to have a genuine network uh, that you can lean on. And f- in fact, today alone, there's I'm looking at two people's faces who have radically changed my career. Uh, Noah and Brandon, I met. We talked on Telegram. We ended up being in a lot of the same rooms, talking about s- some of the same things. And I got a lot of encouragement from both of these guys to to build a brand, to to reach out, to help where I could. Um, operations isn't, isn't as directly a, there isn't a direct translation there, but I know for me myself, when I was in college, I was kind of told that this is this is how you start an IT career. You're either a developer, you're a hardware guy, your paths for advancement are either people management or like real deep systems or, or uh, enterprise architecture type work and that, that's hardly the truth because if you look at it we have a community it's an open source community and there's so much that needs to be done there's marketing there's graphics work there's there's promoting and and as a systems administrator i i was really limiting myself on on what i could bring to bear and and, and i i really owe it to noah to have built this brand, to have gotten out there to I, I'm I'm very opinionated, which you'll learn very quickly, and and finding a way to share those opinions, to share my to share the lessons that I've learned in my career and share that with others, people that are just getting started, people that feel stuck in their career and they need to shift. i, I found a way to kind of contribute back. It it started out chatting in, in telegram groups to um, I was at I think three or four different Linux fests last year, giving talks, sharing my experiences, getting to know people, making connections. And ultimately those connections led me to Brandon and Brandon helped me get a job at 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 Red Hat. So it's nice. it's you, you've gotta you've gotta one market your skills, like Brandon was talking about. You've got to build a brand, you've got to contribute back. And then when that happens, somebody will come along and say, Hey, we see what you've done for the community. That's really awesome. We'd love you to come work for us and we'll pay you to do the same things.
1: So I want to talk about the new show that you guys are launching. And the truth is, this is a really exciting moment because both of you have been in the community doing really great work for a long time. Brandon, you've done a number of different community contributions. And Eric, obviously, um, anybody that's listened to, to my show has has heard the contributions that both of you have done. Tell me a little bit about where the inspiration for this show came from and what kind of content you guys are teaming up to put together.
3: Yeah. Um, so the pseudo show is going to be your place for all things enterprise open source. Um, it's kind of our tagline, and what what we're hoping to bring is kind of a kind of three pillars. Uh, the first is how do you ad- how do you adapt to the the new industry? Everything's going cloud. We're we're talking more about containers and and Kubernetes, and and how that applies to bare metal data centers. So a lot of the new architectural platforms um, are are going to be a focus of ours. The second pillar is developing yourself. What are some ways that you can improve your ability to work from home? Because uh, while Brandon and I have had the ability to work from the road or work from home for, I think, 20 some odd years combined, there, there's definitely a need to figure out how to work from home and be successful and, and still have a family life to be able to, to delineate this is work time, this is family time. And then the third thing is, 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 is a culture shift. A lot of IT operations in particular work from a very outdated method of, of development. And it's all let's let's spend six months planning this thing and we'll we'll spend all of this time and all this money on these projects that ultimately come in past due, over budget, and don't fix the problem at hand, to more of explaining what is DevOps, what is Agile, how do these things apply and how does it how does it not only change the tool sets that you're working, with, which which is what most people think of initially, but how do you change your mindset? How do you change how you do work? So that you don't hit that point of burnout to where you can actually do what most of us got into the industry to do, and that's to tinker and love technology.
0: What you just said about the DevOps and the and the culture is very is something I wanted to talk about in in terms of like in the ep- the first episode you talk about the methodologies of DevOps ranging from culture or company culture, growing your people, and building a team. Could you go into more details about that? Like take us to why these are important for people to understand.
4: So. You know, the industry has been evolving. It's been changing. And like the reason why it's important for people to understand what DevOps is, is a lot of people think when they hear the term DevOps, especially the ops side of the house, when they start talking about DevOps methodologies, part of that is automation. And a lot of ops people believe that it's automating themselves out of a job where that you can't be further from the truth. Like if anything, like in terms of automation like system administration work, the system administrator is actually changing from not just a system administrator, like understanding deep how the system works, but also becoming an automation developer. Like whether if they're uh, writing Ansible playbooks or Puppet manifests, whatever they're using to automate their workflows, becoming not, ju- not just deep experts in the system, but also deep experts on how to automate those systems as well. So their jobs are evolving. If anything, or jobs are becoming more important. Interesting. Uh, not not less important. And like that, that's one of the things I, I'm trying to convey is uh, through explaining what DevOps is. And it's not just, you know, not it's not just about automation, it's about working better with developers, right? ops people and and developers and it historically have not gotten along because developers will just throw code over the fence to the operations teams and go make it work. Right. And then the, you have the excuse on uh, the ops team goes, Hey, developer doesn't work. But the developer then says, Well, it works on my machine. Well, the whole <laughs> goal of DevOps
0: is to eliminate that it works on my machine uh, problem. Nice. So it's kind of like a bridge between the developer and the operations, it's the the, the person who's trying to fit that mold of being the bridge. That's actually a really, I I appreciate you kind of giving that explanation because prior to this conversation, I had no idea what it meant. It was just like a keyword buzzword type thing that I've heard thousands of times. So (laughs) I appreciate that.
2: Well, that's a really interesting kind of segue into my question here about your target audience for the show, because I, you know, this was an area on the Destination Linux network where we were like, we need to find a show that can bring this to the audience. But one of the problems when you look at other shows that deal with this topic is they're like starting already in their 15-year career on episode one and talking about things that make no sense to somebody like myself who doesn't have experience in that area. Are you? Is this show just for people who have a ton of experience in this field? Or is this something where somebody brand new just has an interest in it? can start listening to and start picking up and learning things from. We,
3: we've talked about this recently um, and we actually kind of shifted after episode one, which is a DevOps principle. So we, we've got that one nailed. But so one of the things that we intend to do is we're going to call them episode arcs. And so we're since we're launching the show and we're getting all the all the production back end and everything it, in getting all of our ducks in a row, so to speak, our, our plan is to, to define some of the terms that we're using kind of set the stage for what what it is we're going to cover. So the first few episodes are going to be around that. But we also don't want to just be kind of an introductory show. Um, so we're going to do deep dives into uh, one of the upcoming episodes is going to be about open source cloud management.
4: I'll expand on that. So like we're going to do deep dives into, you know, open source virtualization. So I've done video for Noah for how to install Overt, which is a, uh, an open source virtualization manager for KVM. I'm going to take that to the next level. So I'm going to say, all right, these are your options. These are open source alternatives for, uh, to proprietary virtualization like Zen So, uh, Zen is the successor to Zen server. So, and, uh, so I'm going to go deep into Zen, into Zen NG. I'm, uh, used to use Zen server on a daily basis. And so I, have a deep understanding in Zen as well as KVM. So I'm going to go deep into that. And then uh, cloud management, like a lot of people confuse what cloud management is, but uh, this is specifically for multi-cloud hybrid cloud management. So uh, there's an open source project that I have been participating in for the last seven years called Manage IQ. We're going to go deep into that and other open source management projects, a list of others that we'll go into. And uh, so we'll go deep into those and also go into how this applies to how these, pro- how these tools apply to the methodology. The tools don't necessarily result in good methodology, but they definitely help augment the methodology and make it better.
2: I love this because this is one of the areas that I find myself weak in. I can use the terms, I can because I have to research and look at news articles and things, but I don't use it in my day to day life. So I've got all of this information that in my brain I feel like is just, and I need something to connect the dots. And it sounds like this show is going to help connect those dots into bringing here's the terms you hear every day, but here's how it's actually used in the real world to be effective. And that I find fascinating.
3: And that's definitely yeah. one of our goals because when you look at, uh, Brandon and I both have had the opportunity to. To have one leg in the DevOps community and one leg in the open source community. I, I spoke at DevOps conferences and Linux Fest last year, and one of the inspirations for the show was the fact that you talk to DevOps people who spend a lot of their days working on proprietary tools. And so when you go and talk about basic open source principles and what open source development looks like you get blank stares of people that just don't understand the power of the open source community and then i go to a to a linux fest and i talk about developing with cloud native in mind and people just go what (laughs) so so the the pseudo show is is we're going to try and build a bridge between the two communities because devops whether they know it or not is heavily heavily dependent upon the open source community and i think The open source community can learn so much from the DevOps community to more quickly iterate on some of the projects that we, we we talk about projects that only release once every nine to 12 months. If we move to more of an agile methodology with some of our open source projects, there's a lot that the two communities can learn from each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to learning more about this. And as Ryan said, we know a lot of the things, but not really what they mean. So I like to refer to it as buzzword bingo and uh, so i pr- i play that often uh, but yeah, anyway, so uh, we're really excited to have you as part of the Destination Linux Network, and we're I'm really excited about the, the, the next episode, especially one for the episode two that's coming out. You talk about open source, and how to get started in that, which is, if as as this episode releases for Destination Linux, it will be tomorrow. And and if you want more info, you can check out, the go to destinationlinux.network to find out more about the show as well as the other shows. And just if you want to subscribe to the MP3, you can go to sudo.show, and there will be a link for the RSS feed. There, as well as the YouTube channel for Destination Linux Network is where you can subscribe and uh, make sure to subscribe to all of that stuff because there's a lot of great content coming around uh, around the corner for all of the Destination Linux Network, so you don't want to miss it out. Thank you both for joining us for this episode of Destination Linux, and I can't wait to check out the more and learn more about all the different buzzword bingo stuff that I can actually understand each time I play.
2: They're going to make us smart, Michael.
0: (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully. I don't know if we can help Michael.
2: Oh.
1: <laughs> oh, You know what?
2: I knew you were perfect for the network. <laughs> <laughs> Great.
1: In the news this week, Linus kicks off the virtual open summit by talking about the new kernel 5.8 release. He says it's the largest release ever with over 800,000 lines of code, a 20% overhaul to the entire amazing code base. And you know what's interesting about this is clearly these people were self-quarantining before self-quarantining was cool, right? Like I mean let's <laughs> Us geeks been doing- <laughs> have
2: been self-quarantining since we were born.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and Linus has been doing, you know, he's talked about his home workstation and how he has this he, for a while he was using a little treadmill walking desk kind of a thing. So this is this is really fantastic that the Linux kernel is actually increasing development efforts, not decreasing. But what's interesting is uh it seems like Ryan has been slipping Linus a couple of checks under the door Just because uh, he's all out in Team Red. He's all talking about AMD and Travis thirty nine. How can you argue
2: with me now? Linus himself uses Team Red. Right. What's up I, now, Linux I, community? I What's
1: up admit, now? I'm glad that the last box I built was with an with an AMD box because yeah. now, now I'm in the cool kids club. That's right. right. Now, it's interesting. He discussed diversity uh, as, the, as the developer for the community member, and he replied that he doesn't have any idea if it's good or bad because the thousands and thousands and thousands of code contributions that he gets, he has no idea uh, what any of the specific aspects of these people are, or even if they're people. For all they know, they could be AI. And as long billions. as the code contribution is good, he he's happy with them. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, approach to to the concept of diversity but they are looking for more maintainers they still don't have uh they still don't have enough people that are actively involved um that they feel like the, he can turn the reins over and continue to have people that are going to develop the kernel it's very challenging work it's it's a particular calling for developers no doubt um and so you know if you've ever had the inclination to get involved with kernel kernel development um, they're actively looking for for people to help out so it's something that you you may want to do particularly if you have some downtime with COVID. another interesting move um, or an interesting comment was his his remarks on apple's choice to reposition themselves on an a on an arm base and uh, it's interesting because he talks a, a little bit about how there's going to be a more powerful ARM desktop that can eventually be used for development and kernel developers will be able to develop their code and, and compile right on ARM. My question to you guys is, is it Apple that's making ARM more powerful and ready for the desktop development or is it ARM that has made itself available for just about on the cusp of, of, of desktop development and Apple sees that and wants to be on the bandwagon first?
2: So this has been one of the fascinating, that question, Noah, is interesting because this is one of the fascinating things that I found playing in Apple. So as you know, I have the Mac Mini 2020. We've been competing it against other nooks and things out there. One of the biggest issues and downfalls of this device is the heat. It actually gets well over 114 degrees in some cases playing games or doing rendering this is extremely hot, and I'm talking about the top of the device that would be accessible to anybody touching it, not the bottom, tops or sides, the very top of the device itself. It has a blower out the back, a fan. It can't get the heat out, and a lot of this has to do with the fact of Intel's now generating so much heat on the 14-nanometer architecture that they have, and there's no way to properly get that heat gone in such a small form factor. So the development kits they're sending out to everybody right now that developers who develop in Apple are is a Mac mini, but it has the Apple ARM device in it. And what we know about arms is they generate far less heat. They're generally on a seven nanometer or less architecture. They have the ability to turn on and off certain cores depending on the workloads, and they're just far better at that dissipation. So that's definitely a big push for Apple to move into this. Now for Linux and other ecosystems, Apple moving this direction. We already know Adobe signed on. We know Windows, Microsoft Office is signed on and many other software developers to start building stuff for ARM. So this is going to be a massive push, I think, for the whole industry. And it's what Linus was trying to talk about here specifically when he said, he's, I don't think Linus is going to go out there and go buy an Apple Mac Mini to start developing the kernel on. What he's saying is Apple's push into this industry is going to push other people into this as well. And there will be powerful enough hardware in the future because he uses the Threadripper right now. So it's going to have to be really powerful. But there's going to be powerful enough in the future to where they could actually get a kit that's ARM-based and be able to run and develop software on it so that it will work better in Linux. And to me, that's super exciting. And you could tell he was excited about it as well. So I, I do agree with him. I think this is going to push ARM forward and it's going to push ARM forward for Linux.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective because uh, I I hadn't thought about like the fact that they might be pushing ARM uh, as an entire ecosystem forward by doing this, and it seemed kind of like a an a, like an odd pivot that they were doing. But if the, because it is Apple doing that pivot, it is very high potential that they're going to force people to follow their lead because whether we want people to do that or not, they typically do.
2: Yeah, and we have a whole segment that explains ARM. One of our patrons mentions about you license, you buy license in the architecture of ARM. You don't necessarily just go buy an ARM processor and things out there. We have all of this covered in detail about ARM and the differences in Hardware Addicts podcasts that we do, with Michael, Wendy, and myself. We have an entire episode dedicated to all the information you could ever want. So if you're confused about ARM or don't know the differences between it and the normal processors you're using from Intel or AMD, just check out those episodes on Hardware Addicts.
0: This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized for managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. DigitalOcean also recently did some got some new features and services like the Virtual Private Cloud or the VPC. It's available in all regions free of charge and lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads, which is awesome so you can actually have the Virtual Private se- the Servers with the Virtual Private Cloud. Van- fantastic. And they also added the Container Registry. It's now available to all users in an early availability release. So easily store and manage private container images and push images seamlessly to DigitalOcean via Kubernetes. You can also get use their new quick install droplets that we are definitely if, if you want to check out the Jitsi, you can have web conferencing like a Zoom alternative, and you can even set up your own Minecraft server thanks to the new quick install droplets through the DigitalOcean Marketplace. You can get Ever all this. Since
2: they included these, Michael. I get disappointed when I go into the marketplace and there's not a one click. Like I'm so spoiled by the one click marketplace <laughs> that no matter what I'm dropping a server for, I'm like, oh, it's not available. You mean I have to just I mean, because let's face it, dropping a server on DigitalOcean is pretty simple anyways, and there's instructions out there to do it all that, you know, you could have it set up in 10 minutes manually. But now I just want everything one click. I'm completely spoiled.
0: Yeah, it is it is fantastic. And especially when you go into the marketplace and you're like, oh, okay, cool. I wanted to get this anyway, but now I could just click this button and it's bam, it's there in like fifty seconds or something. Uh, that yeah. this that's awesome. And also you can get all of this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as five dollars per month. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free though, with a 100 dollars credit by going to DO.co slash DLN. Again, you can get started with that $100 credit so you could spin up over a dozen droplets or you can even do like monster-sized droplets for two months and just check out all the different power you can have with DigitalOcean. And again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to co/dln. And we thanks to DigitalOcean. We thanks again to sponsoring Destination Linux.
2: All right, this one I'm so excited about. I've been excited about this all week, you know. <laughs> no, it's getting ready. All
0: right, cool. Everybody stretch. You don't want to pull a muscle. You want to pull a muscle. All right, so we actually have something really interesting coming up. It's a new, it's a battle series apparently, and that is ZFS versus ButterFS. And so on, a, on the news that there is a serious proposal coming out with uh, Fedora potentially switching to ButterFS as the default. So we thought it would be fun to essentially torture Noah with a conversation about ButterFS versus ZFS. So this proposal is being backed by various different uh, Fedora developers, Facebook and other stakeholders, including Noah. And um, uh, also the ButterFS. He's FS- his
2: money where his mouth is. He's like, <laughs> ButterFS. Or I'm no longer using it. That's what I heard him say on the show.
0: That's what I heard, too. Uh, ButterFS is a modern common, uh, copy-on-write or COW file system for Linux aimed at implementing advanced features while also focusing on vault tolerance, repair, and easy administration, and also it allows for snapshotting and various different other features. Uh, so the contributors to ButterFS includes uh, the uh, SUSE, which is probably the most uh, known version of people who work on ButterFS, but also Oracle, uh, Fujitsu, and Facebook. Book. Gross. So everybody's excited about that one, right? Fedora, g- considering this as a possibility, is very interesting. So I want to find out what the, the uh you know, let's start the battle between the butterflies versus. Let me tell CFS. you
2: something. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Noah. You love Fedora. There, you've made no qualms about it. It's your you, you love Red Hat, it's your absolute favorite company and open source. You have all of their posters, you have old CDs of theirs. You're just a
1: huge fanboy. So when the developers of your most I, mean, I just I like places that make good stuff. I mean it's yeah, like what well, when you're, real beauty. That's what I consider real beauty is the a good red hat on a ThinkPad. Sorry, sorry to digress.
2: Yeah. So then when they come in and they say, Hey, we think the developers, we think we should go to ButterFS. You, sir, should shut up and listen and go with the flow. How you it's like them apples? Exactly.
1: Well, uh, 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 m- here's what <laughs> I did. Here's what I did. I invited the developers on my show to come, uh, ButterFS to come talk to me about this decision. And so we've got people from the Ubuntu Council. We've got people from Facebook. We've got developers from ButterFS. And we all sat down and recorded an interview so I could learn more about why they made this decision. And and, and what I came away, I mean, watched the interview on Tuesday, but what I came away with was this. ButterFS is a really, is a file system that was developed out in the open. And anytime you develop a file system, period, there are going to be be setbacks and there are going to be things that are going to be, you know, catastrophic failures. And then we evolve from that and and we fix. Is ButterFS perfect? No. Is ButterFS right for every use case? No. Does ZFS still have a place? Absolutely. Um, So I, I guess my hard lines in the sands weren't necessarily changed, but I will tell you this. ButterFS has grown a lot. I think there are some misconceptions out there, um, some misconceptions that I even held up until I had a chance to sit down and 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 get to the truth. So you of admit it. you were wrong? No, not even close. But okay. they, but because uh, I hate losing ground. <laughs> but the uh, but. But there are some things that I was able to to, to change my mind on. And that is that if you're looking for a file system that does snapshots and you're not concerned with doing any sort of uh, VM storage, ButterFS might be a way to go. And a lot of the shortcomings that were previously true about ButterFS have either been fixed or you're not going to find them. Uh, There's not, again, no file system is perfect, but uh, there are no real high likely things that are going to uh, that are going to pop up and bite you, and so Fedora thinks it's ready for prime time. We will see. I think that it will be interesting to watch what happens when Fedora rolls it out. I don't think that necessarily means that that's a that that's a precursor to Red Hat just flat out adopting it. I suspect that that um, OpenZFS is going to continue to make development and continue to make headway, and I suspect that that will be a strong contender by the time that. Um, by the time that these two things come together. Um, But it'll be interesting to watch how ButterFS works on Fedora if there are any problems and if they are how they are accounted for. Because one of the things that I I struggle to kind of square in my own head is on one hand, Facebook is a massive organization. And so there is a temptation to say, well, if it works for Facebook, it should work for me. I mean, it works for Facebook's data. But you have to understand in large enterprises like Facebook, really, if the file system fails... They just, they restore from a backup, the server, you know, gets re-imaged to be a new server and then they continue on. There's so much redundancy. There's so much backup that goes into an enterprise at at that scale that you wouldn't necessarily see the problems. They will see them on the back end. They'll say, hey, you know what? These servers have to re-image every so blah, 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 blah. And it's constantly restoring from backups. And that's not good. We went to this file system. You know, you might see that. But on the outside, we wouldn't necessarily see that. So it'll be interesting to see um, what Facebook's continued adoption of ButterFS is. It will be interesting to see what Facebook's or excuse me, Fedora's adoption of ButterFS is. And then it will be interesting to see if it makes its way into something like. Ubuntu. You have to remember.
2: This is just a recommendation, right? It's not a guarantee this is going to happen. No, but it's
1: the direction it's going. It's the direction it's going. And I spoke with people from the Ubuntu Council, or excuse me, from, uh, from the Fedora Workstation Group, and all of them, generally the same idea that Hey, this is something that is going to go into Fedora and we're going to see what it's what the success is. But I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a difference, a drastic difference, between the Fedora user group, between the amount of Fedora users out there and the amount of Ubuntu users out there. And so if you roll it out on Fedora, that and, and it proves to be successful, that's great. That's step one. Now I'd like to see it rolled out into something like Red Hat or something so like that. So would you switch
2: Ubuntu. if they do that? Would you switch to the ButterFS file system?
1: I will use whatever is default in Fedora because I trust Red Hat and the developers of Fedora to, 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 to make, you know, you've
2: evolved so much you've gone from a munch last Pokemon to the full Snorlax. You know, I'm just so proud of you.
1: I, uh, if here's the, the, the bottom line is this, right? If a $34 billion company thinks that it's, it's a good file system for their, for their desktop op, workstation operating system, Little old Noah Chalaya in Grand Forks, North Dakota, isn't going to tell them they're wrong. We'll give it a shot and see what happens, and then we'll make our decision from there. See, the Facebook use of it was
2: probably... The most disappointing part to me, because Facebook gross, but it is interesting. They do contain and steal lots of data, and they have to store that. And yeah. uh, so, the great you thing know, about Facebook, they have there to
0: store is, your still in data, yeah, stolen right. data somewhere.
2: Here's Hold on, let, so I just, I good.
1: got, I got, I have to, I have to get this out here. We mm-hmm. have, we have to make a distinction because I feel like there is one. We've got to make a distinction from like the yuppity ups that do all the bad things with privacy, and the and the and the dude who's working for Facebook developing ButterFS. Because I promise you that. That guy it has nothing in common with the people that are like, oh, let's take all the data and steal everybody's stuff. And so, I mean, they're just, it's, they're two different worlds. This yeah, guy's to- just totally.
2: Code. But I'm just saying the Facebook, you know, saying they use it, it's not very exciting to me. Now, Oracle, SUSE, Fujitsu, these are also very big companies that utilize, you know, massive amounts of data and require it to be stable and secure. And the fact that they use ButterFS, I think is fascinating and contribute to it. I the times I've been on ButterFS, the snapshot rollback capabilities is the number one thing for me as a desktop user that I just fell in love with and absolutely loved. And there are other solutions for it, but I thought it was the most robust and easy to use. And it got me out of a lot of jams when I messed stuff up when I was experimenting. And so I, I really like some of the features that it has. And I think the biggest problem with ZFS, it's an amazing file system, but it continues to come up and all the forums and discussions is the licensing issues. And I know that there have been people who have made deals to try to get around it and things, but it's still a major concern, especially for a company like Red Hat and others that have billions of dollars invested in their infrastructure they've deployed out there of utilizing something that may have licensing concerns. So maybe this is the right route to go is ButterFS, where you don't have a licensing problem. And if it's really become stable enough for these big industries
0: to use it, time isn't but zfs how, controlled the, the, by oracle as well
1: zfs is but there is a there is a there is the announcement in 2013 was to rebase everything uh on an open source fork of the original zfs which is open zfs and now even the bsds are all coming together to to, to center around open zfs so i think that that's a somewhat accurate uh, summation of uh, uh, of what's happening, but I think it's important to remember that ZFS isn't standing still, right? Yes, ButterFS has uh, has a leg up as far as licensing goes, but I think ZFS has either tackled that or is almost done tackling that, and that's why you're seeing experimental support in the latest LTS of Ubuntu. Interesting.
2: So there was some, you know, this isn't directly related because this isn't ZFS versus they didn't have ZFS in here, but Fronix did benchmarking across all the file systems. Well, that they accessed here, which was XFS, EXT4, ButterFS, F2FS, and NILFS2. Well, the winner was XFS. They reigned supreme in all oh, of the benchmarks as a file system. ButterFS came in third place. Um, just ahead of EXT4 only. So there you go.
0: That is interesting. I th- I think XFS is a really good file system as well because it does have a uh, snapshotting ability and stuff like that and journaling and all that kinds of stuff. But uh, ButterFS is a really interesting. I haven't had that much experience with it, but every time I've used OpenSUSE, I'm very much impressed by what Butter, ButterFS can provide, especially with the way that that the structure of how they give you the option when you install OpenSUSE, so you can have a you can have you can actually have multiple file systems. And it's really easy to set up because they, they give you this uh, this GUI inst- install, installation path that you can actually have ButterFS on your root system. You can have XFS on your home system, and they give you that option to do it. And it's yeah. a really interesting approach to doing the install because if you are an advanced user and you want to have that kind of setup, it is really cool. And I think ButterFS is one of the reasons – is one of the fundamental pieces that makes – that OpenSUSE's installation through Tumbleweed really powerful because I've had like different examples where I've used OpenSUSE and I installed like updates a- after like six months on one machine that I just had like laying around just to- just kind of see how long I could go with it and have no issue whatsoever and I think ButterFS is one of the reasons that makes that possible so uh, I think ButterFS has a lot of potential and while I'm not that skilled in it I'm going to definitely go against Noah in that because I think
1: it's fun.
2: Yes, I really wanted to go against Noah here, but it turns out he's evolved into a Snorlax. So, Well, there's that, yeah.
1: Just out of curiosity, how do you get to Noah as a Snorlax? Do you even know what a Snorlax is? I assume it's some sort of Pokemon reference.
2: Well, it's... <laughs> Somebody it. in chat, this is how it all happened in, in Ryan's brain. Let me let me break down Ryan's brain for you. Somebody in chat okay. said, Noah has evolved. And when I heard that word, I instantly thought of Pokemon because I'm a yeah. child in, at heart. Okay. And <laughs> sure. so I went and thought of what's the dumbest Pokemon out there. And I thought, oh, the oh. Snorlax. Oh, how and dare so you? Then I had to <laughs> Magic find carp. out because I really don't know anything about Pokemon. So I had to go no. quickly look up. What is the Pokemon evolution cycle from Snorlax? And I yeah. found Munchlax and Munchlax, Munchlax. evolves into a Snorlax. So My you were sweet. originally a Munchlax and now Munchlax. you're Snorlax.
1: Snorlax.
0: Snorlax. This is this and, uh, is great because you made that reference and I was like, Hell, he knows Pokemon. Like I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but I'm sitting here on
2: Pokemonfandom.com website here. I'll just I'll quickly paste it in here because I had to <laughs> just figure go to out
1: Pokemon.com slash US slash Pokedex slash Snorlax. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know that off the top of my head, but anyway. So, um, so let's see. Here. That was Snorlax. So that means I have uh, good HP and good attack. My defense isn't so great, and my speed isn't so great.
2: Yeah, because you right. fall asleep a lot. <laughs> fall and asleep. it's actually kind of perfect now that I think about it. Because if we don't keep your attention with hot topics, you know, you'll right. you'll wander off and think about something right. else. Right. You start talking about and, something boring like right. butter
1: I'll just <laughs> <laughs> find a way to tie it to ZFS.
2: So also in the news, we have Chrome OS full Steam ahead. Well, Google is starting to realize that they need to amp up the gaming capabilities of Chrome OS to compete and integrating more Linux and Steam as a part of their solution. So at least they're getting that part right. Those spying on the Chromium open source code have uncovered a project code named Borealis. This appears to be an integrated version of not Debian, so this is not to be compared with What is it? Crouton or Cortini or whatever it was called before, which was Debian. This one actually is a version of an Ubuntu distro, which will allow Steam to work on Chrome OS. And in fact, this version of it comes with Steam pre-installed, which is why everyone is speculating this is exactly what Chrome OS is doing. So the rumor is they will only support 10th gen Intel-based Chromebooks, but of course that can change. So like WSL, Chromebooks will be supplementing, supplementing their shortfalls here by taking the very best of Linux and incorporating it into their own operating system so that you could game. And they'll be likely leveraging all the work that Code Weavers and Valve did here. So I think this is very interesting. We talked last week about Apple having a huge problem in the gaming arena and Linux being far superior in that world. Chromebook, obviously, in the very same venture. I would have assumed they would have pushed Stadia as kind of their solution to this. But instead, it looks like they're trying to incorporate Ubuntu and Steam instead, potentially, as their solution to some of their gaming shortfalls. Now, considering how weak Chromebooks are for the most part. This is kind of surprising. So maybe this new 10th gen series of Chromebooks and the ones upcoming are going to be far more powerful than the ones we have today. Or maybe they're just looking at getting simple games and things to run and not your advanced kind of triple A games. But I thought it's an interesting move because you have a lot of companies now that have operating systems out there really taking some of the best parts of Linux growth lately and just zapping it up and incorporating in their own operating system.
1: I don't think this is going anywhere. I'll just come out and say that point blank. I don't think, I don't think Google has ever participated in the gaming sphere to a point that anybody really takes them seriously. I think that their streaming efforts were an abysmal failure I think that Valve is doing very well with Linux. I don't think anybody thinks of Google when they think of gaming. I don't think anybody wants to think of Google when they think of gaming. I think if any major company was set to take that on, it'd be Microsoft because of the Xbox and their success with it. I don't see this going anywhere at all. Maybe that's just me, but I think people who are are going to game, even light gaming are not going to do it on Chromebooks, don't want to do it on Chromebooks, wouldn't consider doing it on Chromebooks. There's nothing that the Chromebook makes the Chromebook superior for gaming than literally anything else.
2: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you there. I think they're trying to complete their ecosystem and say, hey, if you're on a Chromebook, you can now run Steam, you can now play some games from Steam, but the power of course of these devices, now they do have some higher end ones, but if you're going to spend a thousand plus dollars on a laptop. I don't think most people were thinking, I want to get Chrome OS on that laptop. They're, they're going to then go and get a Linux developer laptop or they're going to get a Windows laptop or an Apple laptop. They're not going to spend that money on Chrome OS. With Chrome OS made its name by being that laptop you go spend $150, $200 on and you've got something that you can surf the internet with and utilize Google's suite of Office applications. But that's pretty much It you're not doing any, I don't think there's many people out there would be doing real hardcore development on there. And there are higher end, they have their own Pixel book, I think it's called, and things that range in that thousand dollars, but I've never heard that it was a massive success for them, or people just fell in love with it. So they would have to kind of try to change the reputation of Chromebooks, I think, overall, in order to really even try to capture this. I think they would have been better leveraging Stadia and trying to push there more. But I can tell you this week I spent time with GeForce Now, which does not require an NVIDIA video card to play with which is NVIDIA's streaming service for video games. And I'm absolutely blown away by why more people aren't talking about this service. It is so fantastic the way that they've laid it out so that the games that you currently have on Steam, the games you've already paid for, one of the issues many people had with Google Stadia is I don't have my games and if they decide to get rid of Stadia, I don't have them anymore. But GeForce Now, your current games that you have on Steam, if it's one that's accepted, meaning that they have the license to run, you can run that. So you don't have to rebuy the game. You don't have to do any of that. And you could play it for free. You only get like, I think an hour a day or two hours a day for the free service. But you can go out there right now and stream a game for free on this GeForce Now. It's actually probably one of the best implementations of a streaming service I've seen out there. Far better, I think, than what Google Stadia has. It'll be interesting to see who gets the games because ultimately that's going to, who's going to win. And NVIDIA unfortunately lost a lot of the game developers out there on their service. They just haven't advertised it well because I've heard so many bad things about it that I stayed away. But when I tried it this week, I was like, whoa, this will work on AMD. This will work. It doesn't matter if you have an Intel GPU, it will work on anything. And I get to keep my own games. That's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, that is a pretty cool thing. And uh, I want to try it out as well. But I think the one of the issues they had is that they didn't get some licensing from some of the developers and they just started yeah. playing the games and stuff. And it was like... Uh, that that's something they need to check out. But I think that G or G force now is way more interesting than Google Stadia. And I think that might be why Google is doing this with their Chromebooks is not relying on Stadia because there's other issues that Stadia has. So maybe that's why they're dealing with the Chromebooks. But again, I agree with the whole, the Chromebooks are so underpowered and what are they really doing with this?
2: But maybe we're wrong. You never know in these markets. Maybe Chromebooks the next big thing. It's gonna take the world by storm. Noah's gonna buy a thousand Chromebooks and hand them out to all of his employees. No. Just never know. No, I mean, he changed his mind that. on ButterFS. Well, so who know, knows what's my next?
0: No, Noah, Noah would only do that. He would only buy a bunch of Chromebooks if they all, all implemented ButterFS in order to do it. So I mean oh, yeah. I, when that happens not, for that's, sure. That's then he'll that's buy awful, them all. For all sure. Point.
2: News. Let's that's move on. News. <laughs> <laughs> i love all the mumbling this is, back this is
1: what no one's gonna do actually that's not let's move on okay
0: <laughs> we're not gonna give him a chance to defend himself so up next in the show is the software spotlight we're gonna be doing our picks right now and the first pick that we have is the spotlight which is stellar stellarium stellarium stellarium, stellarium
1: come is on
0: it, is it stellarium or stellarium i have do, it, do I mean, no idea no. yeah uh, stellarium it's it?
1: stellarium
0: Stellarium. Let's go with that. So Stellarium is a free and open source planetarium for your computer. It shows a realistic sky in in three D, just like what you what you see with the with your eyes when you look outside. And also, it gives you options for binoculars and telescope options. It has a bunch of features, like uh, it has the ability to uh, check out over six hundred thousand stars through their their default catalog. But they also have an extra catalogs option where you can add more than one hundred and seventy seven million stars which is ridiculous and awesome. I
1: don't know how that's possible. I've
2: counted them. There's only like 150.
1: Yeah, 150
0: total stars. Yeah, for sure. That you
1: can see. (laughs) Oh,
0: and also, it has uh, eighty thousand deep sky objects. It has over m- one million deep sky objects as options in the extra catalogs, and a bunch of other options. So, if you want to check out like uh, constellations and like different cultures of stuff, with, like there's so many things you can even check out like a realistic Milky Way representation. And I, I think st- Stellarium, Stellarium. Different I don't know.
2: cultures of stuff. You're not looking at alien planets, dude. I mean, no not, di- constellations. Well, I guess maybe you could from the find the perspective. Alien life.
0: I you was. Know, so, that's not what that's I meant. Really
2: but, interesting.
0: <laughs> yes, you maybe if you you could use Stellarium, Stellarium, to find alien life that has been confirmed on Destination Linux. So check out the software spotlight, Stellarium, Stellarium. <laughs> well, links in the show notes. You
2: can find <laughs> alien life. <laughs> There's
1: something wrong with you. <laughs> He's like, you can investigate different cultures. I'm like, that's not. uh, How did I say? What are you looking
2: at? Cultures. It
0: says cultures.
2: (laughs) Oh, I wrote that. My bad. Ah. I was like, "Why are you giving me a hard time for something you wrote?" Like, well, I don't ah, know what this I didn't means. know
0: aliens danced
2: on this day. That's such hey, an hey, interesting hey, culture hey I learned.
0: But I think, think it's for. I think the cultures is from something from their list listings, isn't it?
2: It is constellations you up- for twenty plus different cultures. You yeah, I don't,
0: to, to <laughs> I, with- I don't know what that is. I don't know
1: what that
0: is. <laughs> I don't know what that is. I don't know what they mean by that. Maybe they like. <laughs> oh, it's constellations. Man, I know what it is. It's constellations <laughs> that are represented from cultures, from various different cultures, seeing because the, how they look at – because, like, the Big Dipper is not a constellation for literally every culture. So, like, that's – I think that's what they're talking about. Because, like, you know, look at, like, the Greek mythology have their representations of the different types of of, of constellations for that. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. So that's what that means. I now
2: need to download Stellarium so you can
0: learn stuff about alien. I think you mean Stellarium so I can find alien life on other planets and stuff.
1: (laughs) This tip comes in from Michael. He says, here's a command line tip to repair a broken MP4 that he used with success. Now, it's a bit tricky. It's called Untrunk. And uh, in order to build Untrunk, you need... Uh, ffmpeg 3.3.9 but now there is a snap that statically links the correct version of ffmpeg you can find it find more at snapcraft.io slash untrunk dash a-n-t-h w-l-o-c-k we'll have a link for you in the show notes snap install and then obviously from the edge Run that, and then you're able to create a or a fix an MP4 that was previously broken. So a huge thanks to Michael from Belgium for sending that in. Again, if you want the specifics on the syntax of that, we invite you to check out the the show notes.
2: I thought this was pretty cool because he took one MP4 that was broken and not playing, and then you take an MP4 that's working, and it takes some of the parts from the working one and mm-hmm. injects them into the broken video link so that you can play that MP4 again. So if you had a family video or something else. That wasn't playing anymore, that was broken, maybe it got copied partially over to a drive. You can fix that. And that seems like a really cool thing. I didn't even think that would be possible, but yeah. it must be grabbing some specific pieces of the working MP4 that don't overwrite the video itself and allow it to play.
0: Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. And also it's another example of how awesome FFmpeg is because it's even possible to do this.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So if you if you have an MP4 file that was broken from your ButterFS system, now you have a way to repair it. That's, I think that's really great. Uh, let's move on. Perfect. <laughs> he, he did the let's move on to us. You <laughs> jerk. You don't play our
2: game back at all. <laughs> How dare you? So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening, however you do it, to Destination Linux. If you want more DL, become a patron like all of these beautiful people here with us today. And you get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show. You get to troll Michael. You get to watch us live. You get the after show. It's just an amazing option for you to become a patron on Sponsus or on Patreon.
0: Yeah, you get all that stuff. You also get the the opportunity for for Noah to personally teach you how awesome Butterfest is every week in the post show. So you can totally do that. And you can also represent your love of DL and open source by picking up some Destination Linux network swag. We have T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and more. <laughs> but By the way, big
2: shout out <laughs> to all the community members posting their swag, Destination oh, yes. Linux swag, to our Destination Linux Twitter group out there, showing them sporting it and agreeing with us that it changed their lives.
0: And also, if you want to, please, please continue to do that. And if you have gotten swag, please let us know. Send a Twitter, send us a message on Telegram or join the DLN forum. Any way you want to do it, just send it to this because I actually have some ideas for what I want to do with some images from the collective of the community. So if you do want to do that, please
1: do so. If you're not kicking it with the DLN community, then you're going to be angrier than a mosquito in a mannequin factory. The DLN Discord form is totally sure. lit. If you want to hit up a rockin' community in real time? We got that too with the groovy DLN Telegram group. If you want to be fresh with a fresh game sesh, then join the DLN Discord <laughs> server today.
2: Man, you are so yeah. hip.
0: He was last last episode he in the Vagrant post show. I actually put it in the the edited version, but it was like I'm going to nail this hipster stuff, and you totally did nail it.
2: <laughs> yeah. You are so down with the kids, you know, yeah, super, so awesome. Super fly. Listen, you really connect with I, them by using their own language. I
1: I aim to please. So if you want <laughs> yeah. me to learn about a, a a file system that's clearly inferior to ZFS, I will do that. If you want me to talk like a complete buffoon at the end of the episode, my life is but to serve. Yeah. But I will do it. I will do it with pride and I will do it correct.
2: Well, you you do awesome Best with my the belief. kids. I think you're amazing at the outreach programs you have on TikTok.
1: Proven, yo. <laughs>
0: Sure. And if you want some more content from us, check out the Destination Linux Network. You can find our YouTube channels and also our other shows, as well as the other shows in general that are on the Destination Linux Network. You can go to the website, which is DestinationLinux.network, where you can find all kinds of sorts of open source goodness to nom nom on.
1: Also check out the pseudo show with Eric and Brandon, as well as DL and Extend, which has two new hosts, Wendy and Matt, along with Nate. Check it out. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination.
2: Thanks everyone.
0: Thanks. See you next week. (laughs) Anyway, patrons, if you want to join us, you can turn your cameras on, your mic on and, and join us for the post show.